John chapter 6, if you would turn there in your Bibles, as you're doing so, we want to welcome and uh, I'm trying to get my thoughts together here. Um, Happy Father's Day to all the dads. So um, you don't want to hear it from me, you want to hear it from your kids, and hopefully they're calling you, you're spending time with them. And then grads, if we have any grads, I know we have one. Yep, we have one, uh, Jilly Laggy, but she's serving down in the nursery today, so we'll congratulate her on her graduation. But we are presently going through the gospel according to John, as you know, and um, we're going to continue that, that study. So I need to pray to get my head straight here. Father, we pray that as we look at your word, I think I always pray this, Lord, that you would teach us. We know it's your word. It's inspired. You used human authors to write these things, to record these things, but, but you're the one who inspired them to write the things that they wrote. It's your word. You tell us in your word that it's alive. It's living. It's active. It's able to do things that no other book could do. It divides. It brings discernment, clarity. It transforms our minds. And so we pray, Lord, that you would teach us as we study your word today. We ask for life application, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been with us, or if you're familiar with John chapter 6, you know that John chapter 6 begins with the feeding of the 5,000. And the feeding of the 5,000 is recorded by all four of the gospel writers. John doesn't tell us anything about the feeding of the 4,000, but the other gospel writers do. The feeding of the 5,000, of course, from John's gospel perspective, was like the introduction to what we're looking at here in our text today and, and, and next week. He gives bread to the multitudes. There's, there's um, 5,000 5, men gathered. Some have suggested, some like Warren Wiersbe, have suggested that perhaps there were as many as 20,000 people that were there that ate that miraculous meal. But all of that, of course, from John's perspective, because John deals with things that the other gospel writers do not deal with. John deals with this teaching that Jesus gave after the feeding of the 5,000, after the, the storm and the walking on the water and all of that, the teaching of Jesus, the true bread from heaven. So I want you to note how the, it just ties together. It, it's all kind of linked together here. And so if you would just look at um, verse 24, it says, when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into the boat and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them and said, most assuredly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. And they said to him, 
What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him and whom he sent. Guys, when I look at our text today, for me personally, because I'm always looking for application, you know, I believe that the word of God is written for our benefit. The Lord wants us to glean. It's not a, a textbook. Um, you know, I, I never really enjoyed school much. I, um, I didn't like history, per se, because it was something of the past. I, I didn't really connect with it. But the Bible's not just simply a history book. It, it has application for us today. So I could read the scriptures, and though I'm living 2,000 years after these events took place, there's still biblical principles that will continue to be applicable to all of God's people. And when I look at this, the first thing that grabs my attention, because the people were wondering, you know, they asked the question, when did you get here? And I wonder if the question was really, how did you get here? Because the verses that I did not read, just for time's sake, was, uh, in essence, we were watching. Uh, we saw the disciples get into a boat and go away. Um, we saw that you went back up to the mountain. How did you get here? We never saw you get into a boat and cross over, but yet now you're here. We were watching for you. Surely there were those who were waiting for Jesus to come down from the mountain so that they could maybe follow him around. Remember, guys, when it talks about the Sea of Galilee, it's not talking about an ocean, it's talking about a lake. And so they could easily walk around, and they did. They were constantly walking around the lake into different cities, villages along the lake there. And I look at this and I think, well, we know from the other gospel writers that Jesus actually sent the disciples into the boat, so he sent them away. They didn't leave because Jesus never showed up. And that Jesus had sent the multitude away. He sent the multitude away. Okay, it's time to go now. Go your way. So apparently, John is speaking of maybe some that just lingered. They were just waiting. They were just watching. Maybe we don't want to miss anything that Jesus might do. And so they're waiting for Jesus. They realize Jesus isn't here. The disciples aren't here. Um, so they make their way over to Capernaum, and there Jesus is, and so they ask the question, when did you get here, Rabbi? And Jesus did what he did quite often. He didn't answer their question. He cut to the chase. Now, Jesus wasn't being rude or aloof. He was just simply dealing with the issues at hand. That's what I love about the Lord. Guys, by the way, when we pray, we don't have to have these long lead-ups, you know. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, Lord, this is Dan, Dan Renner. I live at, <laughs> you know, we don't, we don't need the Lord. He knows who we are. My wife just said something between services that really touched my heart. He knows who we are. He knows who we are. So we don't need the, the long lead-up, you know, the kind of the prep, you know. We don't have to uh, prime the pump. Jesus, God, knows the motives of our heart. And he addresses the motives of the hearts of the people. When did you get here? And he said, <laughs> you seek me because you ate of the loaves and were filled. It just kind of cuts to the chase. Let's not play around. You're seeking me. You're waiting. You're watching. You, you want to follow me. You want to be where I'm at because I satisfied your 
fleshly appetites. And now you want more of the same. Jesus knows what motivates our prayers and our praise, our seeking and our searching him. So we need to be real. We need to be genuine. We need to be honest. No pretense with the Lord. Isn't it refreshing to be able to come to the Lord? He knows exactly who we are. He knows what we've been doing. Whatever struggles we may have, whatever sin we may be playing with or engaged in, he knows it all. And to be able to come to him and just say, Lord, help Lord, heal. Lord, correct me. Lord, get me back on track. Whatever it is, just that direct approach to the Lord. So Jesus, he cuts to the chase. He says, because you ate of the loaves and were filled. So in essence, we could say from the text, these people that were following Jesus, asking Jesus, you know, when did you get here? They were motivated by their bellies. Motivated by their bellies. And, and there are many people that are motivated by their flesh in many churches today. Uh, pastor, keep it light. Pastor, you better have a good sermon for us today. Almost as if that's the pastor's job to have a good sermon for the folks that came out. Pastor, we want to hear positive things today, not negative things. And you look at the churches that are thriving, not all of them. There are some churches that are thriving numerically because they're truly standing upon and teaching the word of God. Praise the Lord for that minority. But many of the churches that are thriving today are thriving not because the pastor is speaking or teaching the word of God and speaking about, you know, holiness, but rather happiness. These are the things, God, Lord, the Lord is here to make you happy. Are you happy? If you're not happy, there's something wrong. What would make you happy? A new car? Well, the Lord will give you that new car, if you believe. And see, the whole message of the gospel, the whole message of the church, the whole purpose of the church, because the purpose of the pastor, biblically speaking, is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And yet there are so few Christians that are engaged in ministry. So it's kind of like, do we even need the church? If the purpose of the pastor is to equip saints for the work of ministry, and so few are willing to really engage in ministry, see, see where I'm going with this? But Jesus, of course, he knew what motivated people. He knows what motivates us. You know, guys, we have to be honest. I was thinking this morning of how you know, we see people, I think every church sees people, they come and maybe you've fallen upon hard times or you've messed up, you know, you've really made a wreck of your life. You're a believer, you've placed your faith in Christ, but you've, you've, you've backslidden or you've, you, you've taken hold, you're in bondage now to a, a besetting sin and, and so now you're here, you're at church and it's like, Lord, I'm here, you know, fix me, Lord, you know. And because we serve such a gracious God, he begins to minister, he begins to work in your life. And for some people, you know, they, they get better, whatever that looks like, whatever, you know, <laughs> heading that may fall in. They're doing better. And then they just kind of wander off again. There's not this commitment. No, it's Father's Day. I don't have a Father's Day message. I don't do Father's Day messages because that's kind of a traditional thing. I like to just simply teach the Bible. But I have something for the men. Could you imagine if you were someone, a father, 
who said, a father, a husband, you said, well, you know, sometimes I feel like being married. Sometimes I feel like being a father. But then there's those times that I just don't. I'm just not feeling it. And so you're kind of in and out. <laughs> committed to the marriage? Nah, not so committed to the marriage. Committed to the kids? Nah, not so committed to the kids. You might not be receiving a Father's Day phone call today if that's the case. There are many people. There needs to be this commitment to the Lord. For some of you, this thing, oh, I don't like that. It just sounds like a word. Oh, we're going to get to works. Hold on. Jesus deals with the works end of things. But he's dealing with the people that have wrong motives, and he wants them to have right motives. So in order to get people who have wrong motives to, to get on the right track, is this goodness that leads us to repentance. You, you use the truth of the word to make the correction. So the feeding of the 5,000. Wonderful, fantastic, but it led into this teaching of Jesus that's really so profound. He says, most assuredly, in verse 26, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son will give you, because God, the Father, has set his seal on him. The him there is the Lord. The people, they're listening. Okay. He's got our number. He knows what's motivating us. He's called us out already. I mean, we just got here, you know. And he's already called us out. And they key in on a word that they hear. Labor. Labor. They key in on that word, and so then they are prompted to ask the question. Verse 28, then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Labor. You say, I'm not following. What's the connection? In the Greek, in the original language, the language in, in which you know, our translation comes from, the word labor and the word work found in verse 28 are the exact same word. The exact same word. It means to toil as a task, as uh, to a task, uh, accomplishing a task, an occupation. It means to be engaged in or with. So they hear labor and they think, oh, okay, we, we gotta do something. We gotta work. If we expect to get another free lunch today, we, we, gotta, we gotta follow the rules. And he's talking about laboring, and, and, and we got to do something. we got to labor. we we gotta, we got to make him happy. We need to appease him in some way. But you know what, guys? As they keyed, on the, keyed in on the word labor, they totally missed the word gives. Salvation is through faith alone in Christ alone. This is what the Bible teaches. Now, religion doesn't teach that per se. There are a lot of religious people. There are a lot of people who profess to be Christians, and yet 
they're so caught up in kind of this works mentality. I know something about that, you know, having been raised in a church where it was all about works. Do this, do that, keep this, keep that. You messed up there, you're in trouble now, you know. And, uh, and you always felt like you're kind of under the thumb, you know. And, 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 and for most of us in that particular religious system, most of us got fed up and said, I'll never be able to make it. I'm just not good enough. I'm not strong enough. I don't have the you know, endurance to, to, to be good enough to ever receive salvation. So if it's based upon my works, I'm bagging it. Of course, the gospel doesn't say that a person works for salvation. In fact, that's an impossibility. Guys, when you consider what the Bible teaches, you know, um, I think of pride. We're dealing with pride quite a bit in our country. Pride, pride, pride comes before the fall. Pride. So why is pride such a big deal? Because pride, guys, is, is an issue that brings a lot of people down. Pride is almost like the catalyst for so many other things. Pride. I'm a good man. I've got a good heart. Oh, don't question my faith. Well, what? No one's questioning your faith. It's just that the Bible teaches that our hearts are wicked. The Bible teaches that, that no one is good, no, not one. Really? Yes. The Bible teaches that when we open our mouth, the natural man, we just open our mouth up and lies just kind of freely flow because that's just part of the natural man. Those who are not in Christ, and this is true of all of us because the Bible doesn't say that you're just simply lost and you're in a bad state of affairs. The Bible declares that before coming to Christ, we're dead in our sins. I mean, that's, that sounds really bad, doesn't it? Dead in your sins? Dead? Spiritually dead? Yes. But the good news of the gospel is that faith in Christ is the means by which we are saved. So it's not my works. Now you say, Oh, pastor, there you go, speaking out of both sides of your mouth. You just said the purpose of the church is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Churches are all about works. Nope. We don't work for salvation. We work from salvation. We don't work so that we might appease God. We have faith in the Lord. We place our faith in Christ. And it's the Lord who gives us the work. The work follows salvation. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. But we don't work for salvation. In fact, you guys know it. But Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace, unmerited favor, you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, not of works, not of works, not of works, not of works. Every generation has to hear this is not of works, lest anyone should boast. You know, you know people, I've known many people, many people, Christian people, they're boasting about how great they are. I'm a good person. I think, oh man, you need salvation. You need to humble yourself before the living God. You need to place your faith in him because you are lost. You need your mind transformed by the renewing of the word of God. You need the spirit of God to come within you so that there's that humility. And there is a humility that comes 
in the lives. It's just kind of a natural or supernatural thing that happens because we come empty-handed and, uh, and we're the, we, we receive from the Lord, we receive salvation, we receive his spirit, we receive his word, we receive his mercies every morning are new to us, his grace, grace upon grace, uh, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. I mean, we're, we're the ones that always got our hands out and we're always receiving. And I'm not saying that there's anything necessarily bad about that. I'm thankful to be on this side of it. But there also is a sense of responsibility. There's also a sense of, Lord, Lord, what work must I do to work the works of God? And he gives the answer. Believe. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. That's the work of God. Believe. Guys, so many people get stumbled up in the simplicity of the gospel message. It's believing in him. Now, you say, well, you know, I've gone to a lot of churches, and of course churches always speak about belief. And I think that every church speaks about belief. Some churches say, believe in yourself. You could do it. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know. You just got to believe. Sometimes it's like that. It's just a vague thing. Believe. Well, what do I believe, actually? What, what does that mean, you know? Just believe. Just believe. But Jesus says very specifically, believe in him whom he, the Father, has sent. He's speaking of himself, obviously. I mean, that's, that's clear from the text. I'm looking at this, and I'm thinking of how, you know, the Bible, it's, it's really, you know, we have 66 books of the Bible in, in our our. our Bibles and and yet it's all woven together. It's not like you know we're just a different topic. Now we're moving to a different. No, the 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 topic of the Bible is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Lamb who was slain before the creation of the world. So that's before what we read in Genesis one one. Christ is slain. So it's not an afterthought. It's not a you know oops what we're going to do now type of thing. From God's perspective, God is sovereign. He's outside of time. And, every, and if you look at the scriptures this way, that we're, I'm in Genesis, I'm in Leviticus, I'm in Exodus, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in the book of Ruth, I'm, I'm in the book of Esther. The book of Esther that never once mentions God. Do you know that? And yes, it's all about God. The book of Esther. It's all about the Lord. And yet, you look at the scriptures and you say, Jesus is found in the volume of the book. From Genesis to Revelation, Jesus is found in the volume of the book. But I think of what Isaiah wrote, oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, I like that, no money, come buy. No money? But yeah, you're gonna buy, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy milk. Wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money on what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. Let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear and your soul shall live. It's an invitation. I mean, as you read the invitation, now this is Old Testament invitation for salvation. 
And yet you say, even then. You see, people get, oh, back in the Old Testament, they used to work for their salvation. But now under the new covenant, we don't have to work for our salvation. No, no, no. Christ was the answer in the Old Testament. Christ is the answer in the, under the, you know, the new covenant. It's Christ. It's Christ. It's Christ. Those who lived before lived by faith in what was coming. They miss the word give, which the Son of Man, verse 37, will give you if, or not, no if, excuse me, give you because the Father has set his seal on him. It's the Son of Man. Now, you know, Isaiah goes on. It says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Come, call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. How beautiful. A gospel message that's been constantly twisted. Years ago, we had a fellow that went to church here and um, sailor, and his family attended the church here. And the guy was a really nice guy, but I'll tell you, he got caught up in so many winds of doctrine. I mean, it was literally one thing after another. I mean, someone would come along with some new wind of doctrine, and he'd lap it up like a dog, thirsty dog, you know. And, and uh, eventually, he got hooked up with a group in town here. And, uh, and they were kind of doing their door-to-door thing, and he showed up at my door. And he, he didn't know where we lived, and he showed up at the door, and I said, oh, hello, and I called him by name, you know. And, and he kind of, you know, he had his little routine that he was going to do, and, and so he was talking, and I said, you know, bud, I said, you don't understand the grace of God. And he says, no, you don't understand the grace of God. Grace does not mean what you say it means. I said, well, what does it mean? Tell me what it means. And in his interpretation of it, and I said, where, where do you get that interpretation, first of all? I mean, are you using the Strongs? Are you using the Vines? I mean, what, what, what source are you going to? And of course, the source was just their little group and what they chose to believe about grace. And I told him, and I said, until you understand the grace of God, you're never going to be free. You're going to be striving. You're going to be chasing after these things. And he was into another works kind of mentality type of approach to God. And I'll tell you, it always breeds pride. Always breeds pride. Now, Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore, they said to him, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate manna in the desert, as it is written, And they quote from Psalm 78. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, and I'll come back to that in a moment. So they said, uh, you want us to believe in you? Give us a reason. And then they gave a suggestion. Manna. If you can do some manna, we'll believe in you. (laughs) Some people are constantly 
chasing after signs and wonders. That's the answer, signs and wonders. Do you know what the Bible teaches, the New Testament? Signs and wonders followed the believers. Not believers following signs and wonders. It's completely backwards. There's so many things that are completely backwards in the church culture of today. Now, some people, they could care less about signs and wonders. Some people, their whole faith is built upon signs and wonders. But they have this suggestion. They said, give us manna. And then they even had the audacity to quote scripture to Jesus. And the scripture they quoted to Jesus is a psalm that deals with the unbelief of Israel. It's like, what? You know, manna gave them bread from heaven. You know, can't you? And it's like, do you guys... Remember what was said right before that verse, the verses before that? Your unbelief, your rebellion, you would not believe. Speaking of their forefathers. And then Jesus goes on, verse 32. Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you bread from heaven, but my father gives, not gave, but gives, present tense, you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And the response initially was wonderful. Sadly, they didn't stay there, but it says uh, that they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Always. Now, guys, if you're familiar with John chapter 6, you know how it ends. It ends with the disciples, the majority of the people, leaving Jesus because they could not accept what he was saying they were offended by the things that he was saying, and so they departed from him, which is really sad. But at this particular point, you know, he's got their interests. He's piqued their interests, and, and they're saying, yes, this sounds good. And the problem is, is that they're thinking of natural appetites. Uh, in fact, let me read this verse to you. Philippians 3.19, Paul wrote, whose end is this whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. We don't want to be people who set our mind on earthly things because this earth is passing away, right? Isn't that what the Bible teaches? The earth is passing away and all that's in it. And so we don't want to build our lives upon something that's perishing. So Jesus, he cuts right to the chase. He sets the record straight. He says, listen, guys, you've got it wrong. It's not Moses, but God. It's not manna, but Jesus. The manna was the shadow. Jesus is the reality. Jesus is the true bread that comes down from heaven. He says, my father gives you the true bread from heaven. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The bread of God is not just for Israel, but it's for the world. It's not works, but grace. It's not bread for the belly. It's spiritual bread for the soul, for the spirit. It's not manna. It's Jesus. He just kind of lays it all out there. And you know, guys, there are many people that are offended by the absolutes. You know, I mean, Jesus, you just kind of, that's it. 
And there were people who stumbled over what Jesus was saying. It was just something they could not accept. And of course, we know that as Jesus goes on, he talks about eating his flesh and drinking. And, and maybe some of you are stumbled by that. You look at that and say, why did he have to use that kind of terminology? Guys, it's important that we keep the context in mind. They ate bread. What does that mean? They took bread and they put it in their mouth and they chewed it and they swallowed it and it became a part of them. And Jesus, as he's giving this illustration, he's saying in essence that just as the bread becomes a part of who you are, as I as you place your faith in me, I become a, a, a part of you. I'm now taking up residence within you. How does he do that? By his spirit. The Bible teaches clearly that every true believer has the spirit of God. So you look at this and you say, oh, it's so simple. Why do people stumble over the simplicity of it? Why do people get caught up on works and all these other things? Why not just simply believe in Jesus and receive salvation? Why not be content with, with what the Lord has, has taught us in his word? Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life who comes. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said this to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father, uh, the, the, the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. We are in, I believe, the last of the last days. I mean, you know, you look at what's happening in the world, and we're, we're just seeing so many changes. We've seen so many radical changes globally, not just in our country, but globally. In our country, all of us, you know, are seeing the things that are happening, and, and many of us are coming to the conclusion, this is happening on purpose. This is not just happenstance. This is, this is, these things are happening on purpose, you know. The diminishing of our country as a nation and, and our sovereignty as a nation and all, all of these different things. But of course, if we're students of the Bible and uh, Bible prophecy, we know that there are certain events that will need to take place in order for... Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. In order for there to be a one world government, as the Bible says that there will be a one world government, um, governments will have to give up their sovereignty. In order for there to be a one world currency, then our present currency will have to diminish, will have to go away. We're watching these things happening before our, our very eyes. And so we look at this and we say, Jesus, you're coming. Jesus, oh, I hope it's soon. I hope you're coming soon. And it's like a gracious, I believe, gracious wake-up call from the Lord, not only for his people, but for this world, because he doesn't want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. 
And it's an opportunity for us, those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, to share the gospel with people who have yet to place their faith in Christ. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. To tell people that Jesus is the remedy for their sin, that Jesus is the <laughs> answer to an abundant life. Um, many times I think we get that wrong as well. Abundant life, he promised abundant life. What does that mean, abundant life? It doesn't mean perfect life. It doesn't mean life without pain. It doesn't mean life without difficulties or hardships. Because if that was true, m most of the people in this room would be saying, I think I've gotten cheated, you know. Something's wrong here. Do you guys know, I told you, and many of you already know this, that John's gospel account is so unique in that John, he doesn't record some of the things that the other gospel writers did record. He records other things that the other gospel writers did not record. He built his whole gospel around seven I am statements of Jesus and seven signs or miracles of Jesus. And yet as we're going through the gospel of John, we see Jesus, it's alluded in the text that Jesus was doing other things that have not been necessarily recorded in John's gospel. The purpose is that we may know that he is God and that we might place our faith in him. So have you placed your faith in Christ? Do you believe in him? If you've placed your faith in him, then we should expect to see some results. We should expect to see some changes in our lives. I mean, you know, if, if the Bible is true, and it is true, if what is promised, you know, you go through the, the Gospels and, and you see this reference. I mean, John the Baptist is the first who, who mentions it. I baptize you with water, but he who comes after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then from there, it's um, the promise of the Father, the promise of the Father, the promise of the Father. What's the promise of the Father? The baptism of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, in John's gospel account, on the night that he was resurrected, he breathes on his disciples and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Do you think they received the Holy Spirit? I think so. Why else would Jesus do that? But then it was, how many days later, how much time passed before he says, tarry in Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father. They're waiting there, the day of Pentecost. The promise of the Father. Promise of the Father is the Holy Spirit coming upon you. Different word than in. It's upon, a P. The Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be uh, empowered, that word dunamis, with the Holy Spirit to do what? Signs and what? No, 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 no. That you might be my witnesses. All over the world. And guys, what was true then is true now. He's given us his word. He's given us his spirit. He's given us the gospel. He's given us the great commission. He's given us a task. We, we know that we don't, you know, our faith in Christ is, is a means by which we're accepted in the beloved, accepted by the Father. It's not by works, but it's according to his mercy, it's according to his grace that we've come to faith in him. We have a gospel message that's not exclusive. 
It's not a message that says, listen, this doesn't apply to you, drug addict. This doesn't apply to you, prostitute. This doesn't apply to you, you know, inmate, number, dot, 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 dot. It's a gospel message that's applicable for all people. Whosoever believes on him shall not perish but have everlasting life. This is the wonderful message of the gospel. And Jesus, as he's weaving this together, he wants them to hear, he wants them to understand, because as the scripture teaches, he doesn't want any to perish but all to come to repentance. So are you believing in him? Are you believing in him? If you're believing in him, examine yourself. There should be evidence. It's not just believe. You say, well, Jesus said that it's, it's not just seen. In verse 40, everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. It's not just, it's not just seen, but it's believing. You might ask, well, how can we possibly see Jesus today? And we see the Lord through the scriptures. It's almost one of those things. We see him by believing. It's a strange thing, isn't it? Our, our understanding of Christ becomes clearer the longer we walk with the Lord and the longer we abide in his word. Jesus says, you're truly my disciples if you abide in my word. See, all of these things, we don't just take one of them and build our whole life upon one verse, but we, we take all of these things because all of these things are important. All of these things are truth. And we say, Lord, I've placed my faith in you. If I've placed my faith in you, then that means that, that if I have my, your spirit living within me, and I'm told in your word that I need to walk in the spirit, and you warn me about grieving your spirit, and um, quenching the spirit's fire, and, and, and all of these different things, um, then, Lord, if this is true, then there should be changes. I'm not continuing to be a person who has the same appetite that I once had because I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. Now, I might have lapses. You know, we might have times where we're being tempted. We might even give in to temptation. But those things don't become now a part of my life. They're not controlling my life any longer because I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. So we need to look at our lives. We need to say, Lord, am I you? Lord, do I, is reading your word a task for me? Is it like laboring? Is it like working? I'd rather not work and read your word. Or is it pleasure? I gave the illustration. Some of you might not have liked it. The part-time father, the part-time husband, the <laughs> fact of the matter is, it's really not an illustration that's unbelievable because many people have grown up in homes where they've had a part-time uh, father or, or you know, husband or whatever it might be. But it's interesting that the Lord uses the marriage as an illustration to speak of the union that he has with the church. Why does he do that? Well, because we can't understand spiritual things that are above our understanding, our knowing. 
Well, we can understand a marriage. And you look at a marriage and you say, well, what, what's God's design for a marriage? Well, that there would be intimacy, that there would be communication, that there would be give and take, that there would be this relationship that, you know, it's not, sometimes it might feel like work, but, it's, it's, you know, it's not all work. It's, it's, there's pleasure there. You enjoy its fellowship. When you think of your marriage, do you think of fellowship? Where you just sit and talk to your spouse? It's relaxing. Just talk. You might not agree with each other on all topics, but, but there's fellowship that's taking place. And that's what we should desire from the Lord. Would you guys come up for the last song? And would you stand with me as I close in prayer? The Lord is working in miraculous ways all the time. Yesterday, um, on the prayer chain, we got a praise report. So one of the praise reports was for Lynn's mom. She's 90, and so she has this surgery, and then it doesn't look good, and then it doesn't look good again, and then she just kind of comes out of it, and you say, oh, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Same same prayer request that came down. So that was the first one, and we were rejoicing. The second prayer request that came down is a little baby that we had been praying for, and, and she, had, she had died. And you just look at that and you say, how sad. But Lord, you're gracious, you're kind. You know, We pray for the parents. We pray that you'd comfort them and, and all. There are things that we don't understand in this life. But if you're a child of God, you know that God is gracious and that all things or according to his plans and purpose. And we submit to that. Isn't it freeing to know that we don't have to know <laughs> everything that God's doing? The mind of God, who can know it, you know. But that we can trust him, we can believe in spite of the things that we see happening around us. That's what the Lord wants for each one of us. If you haven't placed your faith in Christ, we encourage you to do so. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, it sounds so simplistic. If you believe, I believe. Lord, save me. Lord, forgive me of my sins, Lord. Lord, make me a new man, a new woman. Oh, Lord, I'm sorry for the life that I lived. I, I need a new one. Save me, Lord. Fill me with your spirit. Use me, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.